When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Senator Elizabeth Warren in conversation with Bloomberg's Kevin Cirilli. Plus, we've got Senator Bob Menendez. He's going to call in as well. Wealth tax. Talking about the wealth tax, does it have any chance, any chance of garnering any support outside of the Democratic progressive wing? The Warren wing of the Democratic Party. We're going to dive into it, folks. Every angle covered. Plus, new positive developments on the COVID recovery front, especially on the vaccination effort. We'll bring you the latest from the White House as well. I'm accompanied none other than our Bloomberg Politics contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. We begin tonight, folks, with a jam-packed show, including an, ex- an interview with Senator Elizabeth Warren on the wealth tax. But before we get to that conversation with Senator Warren, we have to bring you the latest uh, on the vaccination front. And we've got news and sounds on this from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who spoke earlier today at the White House and said, that U.S. states will see a boost in COVID-19 vaccine shipments next week on top of an initial burst of the recently authorized Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, Saki went on to say that the Biden administration invoked the Defense Production Act to help the historic partnership between Merck and their rival Johnson & Johnson. Here's the sound on that. We did invoke the DPA um, in order to alleviate two of the biggest bottlenecks facing Johnson & Johnson. Uh, One is uh, fill finish capacity and the other is uh, drug substance availability. Diving into my Bloomberg terminal, Bloomberg News reports that Biden and the U.S. may have enough vaccine for every adult American by the end of May. As Merck has confirmed it will help make rival Johnson & Johnson shot, states are to receive a boost in vaccine shipments next week. And President Biden says that he is directing that teachers be given the priority. Some major developments, Jeannie, especially on the vaccination front and really an historic move by Merck and and J&J. 
Very important. And to see Joe Biden and the Biden administration fulfilling this promise that every adult can have access to the vaccine that wants it, to prioritize teachers, to boost vaccine shipments to all of these states. Um, this is an, an incredible, uh, you know, incredibly important for them in terms of fulfilling one of the major campaign promises that Joe Biden made, quite frankly. And the idea that they invoked the DPA to allow these two giant competitors to work together is really critical. And of course, this comes at the same time we're seeing states like Texas and Mississippi end their mask mandates and lift COVID restrictions. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. And we should also mention on the one year anniversary, really, of the COVID shutdown across the country. So absolutely astonishingly fast in terms of how this is sort of laid out. You know, I spent my afternoon on Capitol Hill uh, uh, speaking with Senator Warren and some other sources. And, and that one year anniversary, Jeannie, I'm so glad you brought it up, is on the minds of policymakers in particular. Uh, and it really does feel as if it's an opportunity for policymakers on both sides of the aisle to really check in uh, to see the direction uh, that the country is moving in a, a, on a host of different issues. You know, we've been covering the stimulus front so much here, and as it moves closer to likely passage, even without the minimum wage. But I got to be candid, you get this incredibly positive news on the uh, vaccination front. Uh, Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg political contributor. But the Chamber of Commerce releases some analysis today. Did you see this, Jeannie? In which they suggest... Uh, that perhaps this massive amount of stimulus isn't as needed because of some positive developments in some of the states. And this is, and I'm excited to hear what Elizabeth Warren has to say on several of these questions, but this is really the big question, right? Are we going, everybody agrees stimulus is needed. The question is how much is 1.9 trillion too much? And it is absolutely fascinating that this Chamber of Commerce released this. And of course, we've seen this debate and it's not just a debate, we should say, amongst Democrats and Republicans. We've seen Democrats, some, you know, not as many, but we've seen some Democrats say we need to be careful here because there are challenges like stimulus ahead if we go too big. So I think that is the question now. And of course, we should say this is a bill supported by about three quarters of the American public. And so that is important to mention, widely supported across parties, this bill at $1.9 trillion. So I bring up the Chamber of Commerce and their assessment, which raises questions about the size of the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. And we, we head to Capitol Hill, where Senate, Major Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, gave a weekly press conference. And, and, and we pulled this sound on this particular topic uh, as it relates to the stimulus, because it really is starting to frame the dynamics of the final week or two at least, of negotiations on the stimulus front. So take a listen uh, to the sound on this from Senator Mitch McConnell. We'll be fighting this in every way that we can. <clears throat> it is my hope that at the end, Senate Republicans will unanimously oppose it, just like House Republicans did. This package should have been negotiated on a bipartisan basis, like the last five bills were done. Instead, the new administration made a conscious decision to jam us, to do it one party only. It's not just McConnell who is raising questions about this and Republicans, but as Jeannie pointed out, it also includes some Democrats, including 
Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. And that's where I began my conversation with Senator Elizabeth Warren earlier this afternoon. And I asked her to respond to criticism from Larry Summers, as well as others, who say that the price of the stimulus is just simply too much. Was he right? Take a listen to her answer. He's wrong. Look, we should have learned the lesson, number one lesson from the 2008 crash, is that when you don't put enough into recovery, recovery is slow and some folks never get a chance to get back to where they were before, much less be able to thrive and go forward. We need a full, strong, robust recovery. That's what the Secretary of the Treasury says. That's what the head of the Fed says. That's what the top economists in this country say. So I think we got to do this. What about the minimum wage? Because it's looking like the minimum wage is not going to be included in this, and many progressives want to see that included. Look, I'd love to see it included. The problem, ultimately, it's the filibuster. We're trying to get the minimum wage in through a package in reconciliation because we want to do it by majority vote. We think that a majority of people will vote for the minimum wage, that we can make that work. But as long as we have a filibuster, Mitch McConnell has a veto. Mitch McConnell should not have a veto. We need to get rid of the filibuster. Me, That'll give us the minimum wage. Let me press you on this, Senator Warren, because mm -hmm. some senators in your party, Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, they've come out against this. Look, in order to get things done, we're going to have to deal with a fundamental question. Does Mitch McConnell get a veto, or are we going to do the things that the American people sent us here to do? I don't think the American people want us to sit back and say, oh, darn, we can't get anything done. Can't get a minimum wage passed, can't get immigration reform, can't get gun safety, can't get universal child care, can't do things that are broadly supported across this country because Mitch McConnell in the minority has the power to block that. Right. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to keep putting up the things that we need to do. And if Mitch McConnell keeps blocking them, I think I think Democrats will step up and get rid of the filibuster. One of the questions I get from Republicans when we talk about all of these different plans is, well, how are they going to pay for it? You've got an idea. I do. The wealth tax. Uh -huh. Explain it to me because you've tweaked it from the last version. So let's remind everybody what it is. This is on fortunes, a tax on fortunes that are bigger than $50 million. So your first $50 million is free and clear, no tax at all. But your 50 millionth and first dollar, two cents. And two cents on every dollar above $50 million until you hit a billion. And then we add a little bit more on top of that. That would raise, over the next 10 years, three trillion dollars. What do you want to do with that money? Oh, look, there's so much we could do. We can do universal child care. We could do a big infrastructure package. We could do more on racial equity. We could do an environmental package. It would give us the resources to help build up. Why is now a good time? Because you know this. I mean, already the feedback from the from the Wall Street crowd has been attack this. This is Senator Warren once again demonizing wealth, demonizing the wealthy. Why now? Why is you now know, the I, moment? I'll do now. But let's talk about demonizing for just one minute here. The 99% in America, the people not at $50 million in assets, the 99% last year paid about 7.2% of their total wealth in taxes. That 
top one-tenth of one percent, the people above 50 million, they paid 3.2 percent, less than half as much. This is not demonizing. You can still grow your fortune. Just pitch in two cents so everybody else gets a chance. And why now? Do you know what's happened over the last year? Just the last year. Just in the last year. We have watched millions of people struggle. Millions of people lose their jobs or be cut back in their hours at work, deplete their savings, go into debt. But you know what's happened to the 660 billionaires in America? They have increased their worth by $1.3 trillion. So I'm thinking of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. I'm yep. thinking of suburban Philadelphia. I mean, there's there's this massive disconnect at a time in which you have race, or you have uh, income inequality exacerbated during this pandemic. You were just named the chairwoman of two subcommittees on the Senate Banking Committee, and this is is, is really is your it. first issue du jour that you're diving into. Is this a is this a forecast of, of more things to come? Yeah. You are exactly right about the inequality problem, but understand this. Income inequality looks like this. Wealth inequality looks like this, and all the way up through the ceiling. The people at the top have amassed huge fortunes, and those fortunes are continuing to grow, and they're not making a contribution on taxes. All I'm saying is pay a fair share because Here's how we build a future. We invest in universal childcare and universal pre-K. We put more money into K-12 education. We make technical school, two-year college, four-year college, tuition free. Now our kids have real opportunity. Two cents more than so covers the, the that. folks who are trying to forecast and price this in of whether or not this has a chance it's it's you know i'll be honest with you it's a very difficult in the short term to see this wealth tax getting through but the polls suggest i think it was a, an ipsos poll that 53 percent of republicans are on board with this you attracted yes some progressives on this but also congressman brendan boyle yep who's you know respectfully to congressman boyle i mean he's much more middle of the road than I think some people would think here. So again, do you think that over the longer term that this is going to catch traction on? And have you spoken to the administration on it to get this through? So yes, I think it's going to. And I think when you say over the longer term, I think it's actually over the shorter term. More and more people are starting to look at the wealth tax and say, wait a minute, this makes a lot of sense. You know, people across this nation get it. Independents, Republicans, Democrats, a majority of all of them want to see us do a wealth tax because they know that the system is rigged against them. The people who are out of step are the folks here in Washington. We get them in line with what's happening across this country, we can get this done. Secretary Yellen spoke at a deal book event, I believe uh -huh. the previous week, and she raised some concerns about the wealth tax and said that it was very hard to enforce. Is so, she right? So I'm going to have a conversation with Secretary Yellen about enforcement, but let me just tell you a little bit about the plan, because we worked on this one seriously. What we propose to do is nearly double the IRS budget. We put about $100 billion into enforcement. That $3 trillion that this will yield is net of having really stepped up the enforcement. And the audit rate for this top one-tenth of one percent, the 100,000 families that would be affected, the audit rate will be 30 percent. That means every three years, in effect, you're going to get audited on this. And understand this, a huge part of the wealth are things that are really easy to value. 
we've said we're not going to not even going to try to cover anything worth less than $50,000. So we're not coming in looking at people's double-wide sub-zero refrigerators and trying to figure out what they're worth. But instead, it's things like their stock portfolios. Man, that one's easy to value. Real estate gets valued every year anyway. And remember, we value property for the very, very wealthy every time there's a death. So we're already in this process. I, I think this one is one that we can manage. You and Senator John McCain introduced Glass-Steagall. Can you yeah. get a Republican senator on board with this? Oh, I'd like to. You I'd think like you can? To. I'm, I'm, Are you talking to any? I actually am. I am Please, talking to a couple. You let me know. I will. I All promise. Right, I got a couple more questions on GameStop. Sure. What do you want to see done on GameStop? Uh, I want to see a full investigation. I want to policy know. Policy-wise, though? Is there... oh, but that is the policy-wise. I want to know who was behind the scenes on some of the critical decisions that were made, including uh, the decisions about who could trade and who couldn't at critical moments. I also want to see an investigation into the contracts that folks signed uh, in order to work through GameStop, which means they have forced arbitration clauses. So if they get cheated, they can't actually go to court. That's not right. Merrick Garland, are you satisfied on this antitrust uh answers as he's, yeah. or you think he's going in the right direction? I think, I think that Merrick Garland is definitely going in the you right direction. You mentioned one year later into the pandemic, we've uh -huh. become more reliant as a society on the internet, on big tech. You've raised a lot of concerns about big tech. Are you more concerned now about big tech than you were a year ago? Yes. How? Because big tech is now more powerful than ever. You think they are? Yes. They are more powerful economically. We rely on them more economically. They are more powerful socially. We rely on them more for our connections. And they are more powerful politically. We need to break up big tech. I have to ask you one final question. You mentioned this earlier. Governor Cuomo, should he resign? Uh, Governor Cuomo needs a full independent investigation. And I think the attorney general has that in mind. That was my conversation. With Senator Elizabeth Warren, I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and my colleague Anna Edgerton uh, of Bloomberg News. Uh, Jeannie, I mean, your reaction. You covered so much ground in that with her. And I think for me, what came out clear is despite the election of somebody like Joe Biden, who has been very clear that he is not supportive of the wealth tax, this is something that she is indeed set on pursuing. And when you talk, you asked her so importantly about Janet Yellen and others mm -hmm. on the Democratic side who have said this thing is, amongst other things, hard to enforce. She has a workaround for that. And this is something that she intends to pursue. So I was, you know, you know, particularly, you know, uh, sort of moved to hear that and, and wondering how she indeed you know, is going to do that despite the fact that there are Democrats who will oppose that. And then, of course, she indeed said she will and she does want to get rid of the filibuster. And that is something that, again, Joe Biden and others have not been, you know, supportive of. So or has been on both sides of, if you can say so. I think there's a lot there that divides Democrats, not surprisingly, that she is being very public about that she is indeed committed to. So the political reporter in me was struck by two things. First and foremost, that Brendan Boyle is a co-sponsor on this bill because he's largely seen 
in many ways akin to a Connor Lamb in the House of Representatives on the other side of the state of Pennsylvania. He's a suburban uh, uh, congressman. Uh, he's been on this program frequently. And so for him to co-sponsor this, he, you know, she did garner some centrist support, which, which again raises questions if you, and we have no comments on this, but should Biden only seek one term, this is a marker issue. And I got to be candid, there are populists in the Republican Party, you know, and I don't want to name names yet, but I, when I can report it out, you know, I'll, I'll share, obviously, I'll report it. But there are populists in the Republican Party, Jeannie, like the late great Senator John McCain, who worked with her on Glass-Steagall, uh, that this is going to get their attention. And she's not she's not bluffing when she talks about that. She's not. And she said she would come back to you, which I'm waiting right. with bated breath to hear. <laughs> so am I, but, Senator Warren. <laughs> I'm waiting to hear what Republicans are, are, or if any, are on her side. And of course, we should say you started out the interview where she said somebody like Larry Summers, a Democrat, Larry. is dead yep. wrong when he Gotta says talk that, about Larry. that there is a concern about inflation as a result of the size of this bill. And I was struck by the, the language of that, not even just that she doesn't agree, but that he is dead wrong to even raise the issue. So, you know, she she was making news today is my yeah. takeaway from this on a variety of perspectives. She is committed to what she campaigned on, and that has not, uh, you know, abated in the last few months. And the campaign's just getting started, to be blunt. And, and look, I spoke about this with our with our friends on Bloomberg Surveillance earlier this morning. And, and I just want to be, you know, very simple here. The prospects of this getting done in the next few months are, are zero, uh, slim to none. But again, in covering her for nearly a decade, uh, in her from her first year in the Senate on Senate banking, and to see how her policies and her sales pitch for these policies have taken hold. That is that to me is is the longer term storyline to continue following. Here's some color for you, some off camera color ahead of the interview. And in, in part of my prep, our colleagues at Bloomberg Wealth, Simon Hunt and Ben Steverman. I don't know if you've seen this. Go read it. It's on the terminal. Richest 100 Americans would pay $78 billion under Warren tax, and they actually ran the analysis. Now, Warren's office was communicating with me ahead of the interview about this analysis in which they look at folks like Jeff Bezos, like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page, Buffett, all of them, how uh, the ultra-millionaire tax could cost the top 10 richest Americans. And they were fascinated by my colleague's analysis of this. And she, right in the lead up, Jeannie, was asking me, well, how did they crunch these numbers? And, and you know, she was very interested in the methodology, methodology of this analysis. And I will tell you that it got a thumbs up for how they did this analysis. So that's a plug for my colleagues who ran this uh, analysis in which they really found that the wealthiest 100 Americans would pay $78 billion under this tax, uh, Jeannie Shanzano. And, and I love it because, of course, we all remember Elizabeth Warren. She is the an professor. academic. I was going to say, <laughs> like she you. is a scholar. She, you know, she has a plan for everything. And I love the fact, and I am not surprised that she is saying, Kevin Bloomberg, how did you crunch these numbers? Yeah. That's how detailed <laughs> she gets. And, you know, this has been Elizabeth Warren. And I give her credit because 
because she has stuck to what she believes in, you know, from beginning to now. She does not change. She does not alter as a result of changing times. And I think your point is very well taken. Both she, I think, and Bernie Sanders have been incredibly important in bringing many Americans along with what we're at just a few years ago, considering, you know, sometimes, you know, a little bit out there ideas that have now come into the forefront. And I think she is feeling the wind on her back. And rightly so. She has been, uh, you know, really on the forefront of a lot of these issues and talking about this wealth gap, which she sees as something that she can address from the Senate and intends to. It's going to be fascinating, especially if a Republican comes out. And there's a lot of Republicans in the Senate who are thinking about running for president. Which one of them will join her on this? That's that's where this story is headed. Coming up next, much more policy and politics. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli, and I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Great panel. Great panel. Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, is with me, as is my colleague, Anna Edgerton, and she is Bloomberg Politics editor. Anna, I, let's... let's uh, now talk about this wealth tax through the analytical lens. Chances of this getting passed actually in this Congress are what? Uh, pretty close to zero. And the reason yeah. being that you know, Democrats have such narrow margins. You know, they only have 50 seats in the Senate. They have a narrow majority in the House. And not even all Democrats are on board with this. I think we should look at this you know, as an important piece of legislation, but more as a marker of where progressives want to go, not necessarily what they're going to be able to accomplish in this Congress. Well, I, do you think it also provides some political cover for progressives to talk about something else other than the, the reality that is looking increasingly like they lost the minimum wage issue as a part of this stimulus? Yeah, I, mean, I see something like a, a an increase to $15 in the minimum wage is much more realistic in terms of policy compared to wealth tax. I think this is kind of an attempt to, to shift the Overton window, as we would say, you know, to kind of expand the reality as what is possible. And part of it is just kind of the bureaucratic mechanics of it. You know, we already have a federal minimum wage, so it, it's not that complicated to raise it, you know, from seven twenty-five an hour to $15 an hour, as long as there's sufficient time to phase it in and you know, give companies, businesses a chance to kind of prepare for that. On the other hand, we don't have a wealth tax, and it's really hard, for one, to evaluate wealth, to figure out how much people should pay if that were to be implemented. So this would be a whole different kind of undertaking for the IRS and something that they're not prepared for right now. So, and Jeannie Shanzano, I mean, come in here, just given all of your experience, in, in the same way that the conversation in, in the nation's capital where I am has in many ways impacted the private sector to take a look at their minimum wage, I'm thinking of Walmart, for example, could this discussion around taxes, especially when we're on the cusp of a broader infrastructure debate, could this actually move 
uh, folks in in higher income brackets, for example, to change uh, sort of the way they do their the way they handle their money. As we come into tax day, (laughs) very, very soon, I've just been thinking of this myself. And uh, (laughs) sadly, it's a great it's a great question. And when Anna was just speaking, I was wondering, you know, is this in some ways and I don't the political scientist in me comes out, you know, cover for Joe Biden, this idea of a wealth tax that he obviously is clearly opposed to, does it give him cover to pursue other taxes like the capital gains tax, the inheritance taxes on higher income Americans? You know, we know that he wants to raise the the capital gains to 39.5, 39.6 that was lowered in 2017. So, you know, do we see this as sort of his, you know, a sort of cover for him to take that kind of action? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, it's kind of the inverse of the question that that you asked me, Kevin, that, you know, this is less about signaling to progressives and more about signaling to people who are suspicious of tax increases and saying, well, you know, we're going to do this capital gains tax, for example, but at least it's not a wealth tax. You know, it's not that extreme. Uh, You know, it, it, it does kind of shift the the context in which the conversation is happening. And that could be to Biden's benefit. Well, to me, the the fascinating emergence of uh, how Senator Warren, now subcommittee chairwoman of the banking committee, Elizabeth Warren, is going to be using her perch to draw even more, uh, even more spotlight on these issues. Because I remember in her first year of Congress when they didn't even have uh, or, or when they when the Democrats did not have a majority in the Senate, uh, she would have essentially these mock hearings in, and they would rent a room out, and she would call a lot of progressives to testify. But now suddenly she's got the uh, ability to, to really drive the conversation around this and to use those subcommittees as an opportunity to do so. But, but Anna, I mean, if you're Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and you're reading through the tea leaves here, and Senator Warren in an interview with me earlier was on Squawk Box, you know, and, and she's saying that she's very much disagrees with Secretary Yellen on the issue of implementing a wealth tax. There's now a clear divide on where Senator Warren uh, views this issue and where Secretary Yellen views this issue. And that's going to come into the forefront during these hearings. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Kevin, I think that's something that we talked about at the, you know, once Biden became the Democratic nominee, the big question was, how do the other presidential hopefuls fit into a Democratic administration if we get to that? So, you know, it is an interesting question to see how Warren interacts with Biden, how, you know, it, on what issues she kind of plays on the team and what issues she kind of pushes the team farther to the left. So, you know, that's the kind of tug of war that's going to be going on throughout the whole administration. And it'll be interesting to see how it develops as we get closer to the midterm elections in 2022 and positioning for the next presidential contest in 2024. I do want to let our audience know that we're keeping tabs on Governor Andrew Cuomo. And I want to play for you some sound on this from Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who was asked about the investigation. He's the Democrat from New York. Take a listen to the sound on that. Now that the attorney general has taken over the investigation, it will be fully independent and thorough, and I await the results of that investigation. 
So one of the top Democrats and also uh, in Governor Cuomo's states weighing in on that. That was some chatter in the halls of Congress today as well. Coming up, Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by my colleague, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. You know, we've been talking a lot about the wealth tax and in particular uh, taxes and tax rates on uh, individuals who are at the top, top, top upper echelons of uh, American wealth. But it, it's really important, especially as we are on the year anniversary of this pandemic to talk about homelessness in America. And that's why I'm so grateful uh, for my next guest who has put forth a proposal on the housing crisis that has affected 23 million Americans. Just think about that for a second. 23 million Americans who are behind on their mortgage payments and their rents. His name is U.S. Senator Bob Menendez. He is a Democrat uh, of New Jersey. He is a senior member on the banking committee. And Senator, uh, I'm really grateful that that you would come on here. Could you just explain to us what your piece of legislation would do uh, that you have introduced with Chairman Sherrod Brown of Ohio, the chairman of the committee? Well, the specific piece of legislation, Kevin, you're you're referring to is uh, housing counseling. Uh, We have seen that uh, every study in which individuals who are counseled in their housing needs and challenges ultimately uh, find themselves being able to stay in their homes, to stay in their apartment, to achieve success, to overcome their financial challenges in terms of staying home, uh, and to know uh, the programs that they can access and how to deal with their lenders. Uh, When someone doesn't have that expertise, background, or assistance, uh, then very often they find themselves either in foreclosure, out of their home, or out of their apartments. So we believe at a time, as you said, where there are at least 22 million individuals either who are uh, at the verge of the potential loss of their home or their apartment, that housing counseling is a great way to meet their challenges, in addition to what we're doing in the Recovery Act uh, that would provide direct assistance to homeowners uh, and to renters uh, in order to try to assure that during this period of time in the pandemic where we tell people stay home when you're sick, and to the height of the pandemic we told people stay home so that you don't contract or spread the disease, Well, home, uh, those who stayed home often didn't have the employment and the wherewithal to pay their mortgages, to pay their rents, and yet we were telling them to stay home because it was a way to stem the tide of the pandemic. So for all these reasons, we think that this housing counseling provision is incredibly important. Well, I want to talk about the broader stimulus in a second, but just to follow up on this, it would provide $700 million for neighbor works to support housing counseling services. Uh, Senator, I was looking at the numbers. I mean, you look at the, 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 the individuals who this affects, especially in this pandemic, and it's low-income and minority households that have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and the economic fallout. Uh, if you pull the numbers from the Census Household Survey, Just between January 20th and February 1st of this year alone, 
14.1% of Hispanic households and 18.7% of black households were behind on their mortgage. You compare that with 7.2% of white Americans. Uh, you know, Senator, it, it's just another data point that shows just how unfair this pandemic has been economically to minority communities. Well, absolutely. Look, the pandemic has magnified the disparities in our society, the unfairness uh, in many elements, particularly uh, in the access to capital and to what for every uh, American overwhelmingly is their single biggest source uh, of developing wealth, which is their home. Uh, and so when you finally can break into being a responsible homeowner and then comes a pandemic, and minority communities uh, are faced with losses at tw virtually twice as much as their white counterparts. Uh, this is not only the loss of a home, which is where you nurture family, build communities, and build family. It's also where you build wealth. So when you're finally struggling to get that home, and because of no consequence of your own, you may very well be losing it. This is really a, an incredible blow to the development of economic well-being among minority communities. And it has been dramatized, unfortunately, by the pandemic. Senator Menendez, this is Jeannie Zeno in uh, New York, and I'm so glad you're tackling this issue. Um, I was just looking at data, which says that the homelessness crisis is expected to peak in 2023. Um, of course, we're in 2021, and so I wonder, do you think that there is enough stimulus and enough funding in this bill to tackle what we expect is going to be a crisis in terms of the ability for homeowners, renters, and people who are homeless to pay for their living expenses as we reach out two, sometimes three years into the future? Well, I think that the American Recovery Act is uh, incredibly important uh, in terms of being able to stem uh, the possibilities of those 2023 numbers pretty dramatically. If we get people to stay in their home, they're less likely to be homeless. If we get people to be able to remain in their apartments, they're less likely to be homeless. If we do that, and we do have monies for those who are already on the verge of homelessness or are in homeless situations and start to stem that tide, we can dramatically change the course of events over the years ahead. And that's why uh, this Recovery Act is, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there is a fierce, urgency of now because uh, the longer we wait to get these resources to these American families to stay in their homes, to stay in their apartments, to avoid homelessness, uh, the greater the chance that the numbers you just cited can be realized. Is, uh, Senator, you're also, of course, the chairman of Foreign Relations, and, and we're very grateful that you uh, come on this program and appreciative of that. But I, I have to ask you, as we're talking about economic stimulus, you know, one of the themes that we talk about frequently on this program is China. 
And China, for example, has been uh, using soft power and vaccine diplomacy all over the world. Uh, I'm curious, from your vantage point, Mr. Chairman, uh, on the U.S.-China front, how crucial is it that the stimulus get passed, not just to, to bolster uh, domestic, domestically the strength of the U.S. economy, but also to, to strengthen the U.S. footing geopolitically around the world against our, uh, some of our adversaries? Well, it's a great question. And look, first of all, we have to take care of our people at home. We have to vaccinate every single American who wishes to get a vaccine and should get a vaccine. And I'm glad to hear the president's announcement today of greater supply as a result of his efforts. Uh, we, we have to make sure that we recover economically. But the core of your question really goes to our greater China, uh, China policy. Uh, and the developing of a policy that actually recognizes that, yes, we must confront China when it violates the international order, but we must also compete with China. So that means making investments here at home to strengthen our, not only our health, but our economy in uh, the developing, uh, you know, uh, cutting edge uh, technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, computer chips, uh, you know, uh, a whole host uh, of being at the curve of uh, at the apex of intellect as well as innovation in order to compete with China. It means harnessing the powers of the collective economies of our allies, Canada, European Union, Australia, Japan, South Korea by way uh, of some. And when we come together, our collective economies are far stronger than China. Then we can be on a more competitive footing and challenge them for their unfair trade practices. Uh, and just and yes, we need to use soft power, and that includes uh, the global Global health, and I'm glad to see there's $10 billion in this Recovery Act to deal with global health uh, as a down payment towards that goal. And just quickly, as a final question to you, sir, just how important is it that the U.S. supply chains domestically are are able to sustain um, uh, uh, even and not be overly dependent upon China? I think it's incredibly important. That's why I've advanced legislation to do just that. That's why I'm glad to see the executive order President Biden issue as it relates to supply chain. I never want to see a hospital in New Jersey or any place in the United States, a doctor at one of our clinics or any other place in the United States, not have the personally protective gear, not have access to the equipment and the medicines that they need, not have the ventilators that they need, never to be again in the dire circumstances circumstances we were uh, at the height of the pandemic. So we have to recognize that, you know, there are global challenges. Uh, diseases know no boundaries at the end of the day. We can't hermetically seal ourselves off, but we can be ready for what the next challenge is. And that means having a domestic supply chain that can meet the challenge regardless of what it may be. Chairman Bob Menendez of New Jersey, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, and one of the most influential members uh, in the Senate. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on this program and for your time to talk about these important, important issues. That does it for me. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor. We covered a lot of ground today. Absolutely. <laughs> you did. I just sat here and listened in awe. So <laughs> I'm thrilled to be on. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, we're grateful to have you. Coming up, the conversation continues. This is Bloomberg.